comes from the book of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Hear now these words from Mark's gospel. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This, friends, is the word of God for us, the teacher of God, the people of God. (laughs) Sorry. This morning, friends, we are celebrating what in the church calendar is known as Transfiguration Sunday, and that is the last Sunday before we move towards Ash Wednesday in the season of Lent. Historically, in the life of the church, Transfiguration Sunday was considered a high holy day. It's an important feast day. It was celebrated in the church as a big deal. And currently, in the life of the church, Transfiguration Sunday doesn't quite have the same excitement to it. We've kind of narrowed down the big deal holidays to Christmas and Easter, maybe the Good Friday celebration. Some of these other church calendar days aren't days that we necessarily consider super important. This story, the story of Jesus's transfiguration is one that we read every single year. It's documented in multiple of the gospels and this year's documentation comes out of the gospel of Mark. And frankly, it's kind of weird to read it because we are pretty fresh off of Advent. Lent is coming so early this year, we've only had about five weeks of reading the stories of Jesus's life, and now we're quickly approaching his death. Today, what we read, Jesus's transfiguration, out of context, feels like it's coming out of the middle of nowhere. I think most recently we read out of chapter two of Mark, and now we find ourselves in chapter nine, Where we are in Mark is actually coming off of Jesus's first passion prediction. In Mark chapter eight, Jesus has told his disciples that his death will come and they really, really didn't get it. And then following today's scripture lesson, Jesus will come back down the mountain and do more healing. And his disciples will continue not to get it. He'll continue to tell them that death is coming and they will continue not to understand what it is he is saying to them. This story feels so disjointed with where we are right now. 
both in our own lives and in the scripture when it's out of context. It feels like it comes out of nowhere. And this story doesn't really make sense, even on the best of days, because Jesus is on top of a mountain with some of his disciples and he transfigures before them into an image we maybe don't even know how to fully understand or describe. And then Moses and Elijah are also there and the disciples sort of scramble around and are stuck in a moment of fear and then it's over. The story of Christ's transfiguration is one that's really difficult to make sense of. It's hard to understand in the world. It's hard to preach on. So when we read it out of context or when we read it this fresh off of Advent, it just feels really discombobulating. We've skipped a lot of content and we're headed towards Lent. The truth of this story is the reason it always gets read before Ash Wednesday is because while Jesus goes up to this mountain and this beautiful, miraculous, strange experience happens, the truth of this story is Jesus comes down the mountain and he's headed to the cross. All of that will happen in about a week's time, give or take a little. From coming down the mountain, Jesus will die. He's currently in Galilee, and as he comes down the mountain, he makes his way to Jerusalem. This mountain experience isn't just this strange transformation of Christ. It's also the turning point towards the cross. And that is why it always comes before Ash Wednesday. This story isn't just discombobulating it's also the bridge between Epiphany and Lent. It's this moment where God, who is incarnate in the world, transforms before God's disciples, and they learn how incredibly amazing he is. And Jesus says, tell no one until I have risen. And the disciples fail to understand how close death is. The story of transfiguration is one that we struggle to comprehend, and I think that's probably because even the disciples themselves and the people that are writing this down struggled to comprehend it. They go up onto the mountain, they see Jesus transform, and they don't quite know what it means. And then they find Jesus meeting Moses and Elijah. And at least one of these to us perhaps makes sense. Moses, in fact, is someone who he himself transfigured. He's a messianic figure. Moses delivered the people from Egypt. He split the waters. He established God's law. He has a mysterious death and departure. He is similar to Jesus in a lot of ways. And for those of us who maybe aren't as familiar with scripture or grew up in particular position to particular uh, denominations, Elijah feels really random. How many people here know a lot about Elijah? J-A-H, not S-H-A. J, not Sh. Yeah, it's like a little bit. Elijah doesn't even get his own book in the Bible. 
He's not Jeremiah. He's not what we consider to be a giant prophet, but he is in fact a prophet. And the truth is, in the Jewish context, Elijah is incredibly important. He is a messianic figure. There's more stories about him in the Midrash, which is a commentary in the Jewish tradition, than we have in the Bible. He's a big figure who's considered a major point of importance for the coming Messiah in the Jewish tradition. Elijah himself is carried away to heaven in a chariot of fire. Maybe that's the, like, the one part you remember because that's pretty distinctive. But he himself also parts the seas. And so standing on the top of this mountain with Jesus, we find Moses and Elijah. These two figures of liberation These two men who parted the waters, who led God's people through them. Moses who established the law and Elijah who laid the mountain, the mantle down and led God's people through the Jordan. These two people who died deaths that aren't actually deaths. These people whose disappearances are mysterious and unknown. That's who greets Jesus on the top of this mountain. And we have to wonder, is that not some sort of foreshadowing? That these people who meet Jesus are people who part the waters, who liberated God's people, who die deaths that aren't really traditional deaths. These people who continue to appear after their death has happened. Both these men who split waters stand around Jesus as the sky cracks open and God repeats the words God spoke at Jesus' baptism, which is that this is my son who I dearly love. But this time God adds, listen to him. Listen to him. In the midst of all of this that's happening, the disciples are trying to understand because standing before them is two people who are long presumed dead, who've disappeared, who are for them pillars of their faith as they are Jewish people following a Jewish man. And then Jesus himself transforms and they are stuck in a fear of fright and what do I do? What would be worthy of this moment? Peter offers to build tents, to build each of them a shrine, which would be perhaps the most appropriate thing to do. And God's voice rumbles through, listen to my son. Stop doing things and listen to him. And this, friends, is a lesson that Jesus has been trying to teach the disciples himself, and they haven't gotten yet, as he's been trying to tell them and prepare them for what's coming, and they haven't caught on. And God speaks to them in this moment, listen to my son. He interrupts them in the middle of doing and trying to build shrines and entertain all these people atop a mountain. 
and they still are kind of confused. In fact, they come back down the mountain and are presented with the opportunity to heal a man. And what happens is the disciples stand around arguing about the best way to heal. They get stuck on the doing again. They're not really very good at listening. They understand that Jesus is the Christ, but they don't seem to understand what that truly means. They understand that Jesus has come into the world to create a different kind of world, and they don't understand that he's not going to be the king they've waited for. They understand that for the Jewish tradition, he is the long-awaited Messiah, and they don't understand that this is a very different kind of messianic era than they were looking for. The truth about this story is that, friends, as much as it's about Jesus' transformation, it's also about the disciples. They don't get it at all. They've gone up this mountain with Jesus, and they've seen this incredible thing. And they have no idea exactly what to do with it or what it means. And in this moment where they fail to understand, God reassures them that Jesus is the Christ. And all you've got to do is just listen to him. Stop doing things. Stop trying and failing. Stop. Stop. Just listen to my son. They respond to this being told to listen by asking questions, which is probably not listening. They're doing what God has said. They're seeking to understand, to comprehend, and they're also just still not listening. They're trying to make sense of what's before them. They're ready to go. They understand Jesus is the Christ, and they also have no idea how to understand Jesus is the Christ. In this story, while there's several disciples, Peter is the most highlighted disciple. And we've talked about this in the past, but Peter has this particular reputation of being in the church, sometimes kind of an idiot is a word that people will use for him. He is naive, he is overexcited in some of our interpretations. He is that guy who just always gets it wrong. Peter is the one in this story who wants to build a shrine, who wants to build a temple. He's the one who reacts to this amazing thing. He's filled with awe and fear. He finds himself in the presence of the divine. And Peter in this story maybe doesn't deserve as much harshness or hate as we give him. Because in his moment of being stuck in fear and misunderstanding and being told to listen and having no idea how to listen, in his knowing Jesus is Christ and having no idea what that means, he doesn't stop trying to respond to Christ before him. Peter gets it wrong a million times. And it never stops him from trying to engage Christ's presence in front of him. Peter doesn't understand, and he doesn't stop trying to understand. Peter doesn't listen when God says listen, and he doesn't stop actively trying to become an active listener. Peter is someone who consistently fails. 
And Christianity sometimes has rebuked Peter for his consistent failures. And something that we don't pay attention to is that Jesus never rebukes him. He tells him when he's wrong. In fact, he tells him when he's going to do wrong before Peter even knows he's going to do it. But what Jesus never does is shame Peter. What he never does is say, Peter, stop. You are so bad at this. You should not be a disciple. I'm taking your title of being the rock away. Christianity, the church, has this way of rebuking people. Jesus himself never rebukes. And Peter has a way of endlessly trying to pursue Jesus, of being excited about his presence, of trying to understand no matter how many times he fails to. Truthfully, I think we should do less hating on Peter and more trying to seek hearts like Peter. This naive excitement that's known Jesus for years now and still just can't wait for the next thing that's going to happen. This person who in the midst of excitement and fear and panic is like running around trying to figure out how to build tents for everyone, even though these are holy beings who've just been transfigured and like, do they need a tent? Do they eat? Do they sleep? Probably not. Peter just keeps trying to do things. I think what we have to ask as we read this story is what does it mean to listen to Jesus? What does it mean to be like Peter that is to be someone who consistently is trying to respond to God's presence before us? What does it mean to understand that as important and as amazing as Jesus' transfiguration is on top of this mountain, what makes Jesus different isn't the fact that he's transfigured. It's not the place on top of the mountain. It's the word and the care that he's giving to those around him. It's the fact that when he does amazing things and no one else understands and no one listens to him, he still offers kindness. He offers his disciples the ability to be witnesses, to have testimonies, to write the testaments. He asks them, just listen, just pay attention, just remember something I say because when I'm gone, this will be yours. And he keeps reiterating that so that maybe it will catch on a little bit because his death is coming quickly and they're not ready at all. For many of us who have perhaps lost someone or grieved, sometimes those people try to prepare us for that coming death. Sometimes they will say things that we find disconcerting. I don't know if any of you have ever had someone like this in your life. My mom is one of these people. Um, she works, worked in the death industry. My mom was a florist, and so she was always, always preparing for funerals. And growing up, we went to a million funerals. That was what you did. It was the polite thing to do. You go to the wake, you go to the visitation, you go to the funeral, you make casseroles, and you go sit in people's homes, and you visit them in hospice care. And one of the strangest things that I didn't realize was strange 
until I got older was my entire life, my mom would say out of nowhere, by the way, Sarah, when I die, don't do that at my funeral or do this at my funeral or just randomly, by the way, here's where the lock's safe with all the documents you need are. Here's this, here's that. We'll go to a funeral and we'll be standing in line and my mom will start whispering about how badly arranged the flowers are and how they probably paid too much for them. <laughs> Driving home, she'd often say, do this at my graveside and not that. My mom is one of those people who has been preparing me for her death since I was born. And it hasn't come yet, and it's amusing to think about. In fact, at times, our conversations hit that level of incredibly morbid comedy that just isn't okay. My mom is someone who's claustrophobic and also has a deep fear of fire. And so when we talked about burial versus cremation, one time she literally told me just to taxidermy her and use her as a porch decoration. <laughs> Which, no, <laughs> but it's funny. <laughs> Having people who are willing to prepare you for their not being in the world is so incredibly important. Having people who prepare you for the fact that they're going to be gone and you are going to continue is important. It's what Jesus is trying to do and he keeps trying over and over again because while his disciples haven't got it and while they're not ready, it's coming. Where we are in this story, friends, is somewhere amongst Peter and James and John. We have been told that Christ's death is coming and we maybe don't quite have a full understanding of what that means. We have been told that he will rise, and we don't quite understand what that means. We've witnessed his transfiguration, and it's difficult to make sense of. The question for us friends is what are we gonna do as we start to come down the mountain? And over the next 40 days, we start to look towards the cross. Lent is this incredibly strange season where people often give up things and take on things. The goal of it is to grow closer to God, to acknowledge the wilderness periods in our lives and in the world. And to some extent, I think the coming down the mountain is for the disciples a wilderness period. It's this in-between space where they've seen God's goodness and they're going towards the cross and they're trying to figure out what to do and God has said, listen. That is my invitation to you this morning, friends, as we journey towards Lent. That is to listen. God is before us transforming, doing good work, preparing us for the death and the life to come. And while we might feel really caught up in doing the things, we might feel really accomplished if we go the entire 40 days without sweet tea or whatever thing you're giving up. We might feel really good about our commitment to doing. And don't get so busy doing that you stop listening. Don't get so busy with life itself, 
that you stop paying attention to what God is saying before us and calling us to do. As we enter into this season of discernment, into preparing for death and also preparing for life, in the season of hope and suffering just deeply entwined in each other, as we stand next to Peter and James and John, listen, friends. And if you can, find the excitement that Peter has in his own heart. Find the desire to respond to God as God stands before you. And be willing to get it wrong. Fail a million times over knowing God is going to keep saying, we're going to get this right eventually. Be willing to listen and be willing to fail and be willing to just hang out on that in-between space in the mountain. Thanks be to God.